to Future Primitive. I am now today with somebody I feel with whom I feel great togetherness and it is Nora Bateson. Nora Bateson's grandfather William was professor of biology at Cambridge University and proposed the term genetics in 1906. Her father Gregory is known around the world as a groundbreaking anthropologist, philosopher, systems thinker, and cybernicist. And sure enough, the voice of the next generation is here too, with the foreword written by the author's daughter, Sarah Bateson Brubeck. The uh, the forward that I'm talking about is the forward to Nora's latest book called Small Arcs of Larger Circles, Framing Through Other Patterns. And I just want to read a quote by Nora that's uh, just so that uh, you, my friends, can uh, go deep into how... Nora speaks, and then we'll, we'll speak together. There are the dipping breadsticks, the stewing roots that the wild herbs of my unauthorized knowings. These are living things, barely interested in the page, but swarming into warmth. In the kitchen, in the street, in the forest, in the sea, in my cells, and in the cache of breaths I cannot count, there is something holding all of this together, all of us together. There is an alive order that we are within and that is within us. Hi, Nora. Hi, Joanna. <laughs> so good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Nora, we, we, we chose today to speak about migration nationality, human and animals moving around the world. Tell me what that evokes for you. Mm. Well, Joanna, this is a, this is a topic that is so important right now 
and so impossible. I have been living in Sweden as an American citizen. And while I was here as an American citizen, Brexit happened. And when Brexit happened, I thought, uh-oh. And so I applied and I found that I could get my British passport because my father was British. And so I got a British passport so that, that I would at least be able to stay in Europe. And then I realized that that wasn't going to work because after Brexit, that they were going to be separated from Sweden. And so then I applied for my Swedish passport and I now carry three passports. Wow. Um, and every time I cross a border, I think, hmm, does this make me more suspicious or less suspicious? <laughs> <laughs> and I really don't know the answer to that question. I mean, obviously, I've been through the scrutiny of three different governments, and I passed the test. So on that level, I should be less suspicious. But one has to wonder, where do does this woman keep her loyalties? What are loyalties? So... In the midst of all of this, I have been trying to move my children into some sort of legal residency in Europe. And, and I've been working with the various groups that are working with refugees. Um, and I've been in many conversations around the world with people who are working in systemic and and um, global crisis management sort of positions. And I have heard so many versions of the analysis of what is going on in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those versions have a certain degree of salt. They have something to them. There's something real there. And what's really real is that in the midst of all of this, there are, I think, something like 4.6 million people in Turkey right now, 4.6 million refugees mm -hmm. yeah. um, that were on their way to Europe. And there are several more, um, several, maybe million more in various other countries from um, the Middle Eastern countries and, and around the world. So uh, these are families. These are people who, for whatever the reason, and it, it might be ecological, it might be geopolitical, it might be economic, it could be religious, it could be war, it could be all sorts of different reasons. But they had to leave their homes. They had to move. They, for whatever reason, recognized that to stay where they were was not enough of a life. And that leaving with nothing offered more. So 
you know, I think sometimes as an experiment to try to keep in mind what's really going on here, that it's a good idea to imagine if you had to leave your home with nothing but what you could put in your pockets, mm -hmm. what would you take with you? Right. Where would you go? Um, you know, it's pointless to think, well, I would bring my jewelry and my money and my valuables because that's the first thing that someone's going to steal from you. <laughs> yes. Um, pointless to, you know, what, what would you actually take and where would you actually go and what would be valuable to you then? So, so and, sorry. Yeah. Um, I think there's a great theme of here of identity, uh, humiliation, and dignity. Uh, mm. Places, places where our dignity is located, might have a lot to do with place. And I'm speaking with a woman who has three passports. I myself am a woman who has a British passport and I've had a green card for 35 years and have never brought myself to actually uh, pledge alliance to a flag. But yet, at, at times I might envy the uh, what I imagine to be the feeling of people who who say I'm an American. I I don't know that mm. feeling. Dignity, identity. And I I don't think that I know that feeling either. I grew up in California and so my body knows that it's home when it's in California and and I I, I never ha you know I never have had that sense of ancestry inside place my ancestry has been in ideas <laughs> and so I have found my home and my roots at another um, in another atmosphere and but you know ideas travel too it's not just humans and plants and animals and bacterias that move around um, ideas and cultures and languages music, uh, all sorts of possibilities move around the globe. And they meet other ones and they're, you know, then there's fusion and there's all kinds of interaction and, and you can get into a really very, you know, kind of neoliberal pro-globalization rhetoric on that. Um, that can 
sort of wash out the possibility for the richness of each of these languages and music forms and cultures and mm-hmm. and and nationalities and that sense that deep dignity that you're speaking of um it's it's kind of a an an impossible process of recognizing the deep settlement and at the same time the nomadic patterns that that you you know you kind of see them all over life you know it takes chaos and order yes. it takes structure and movement it takes all of those things for there to be life um, at, at all levels but I think in this moment, it's really important to recognize that one of the things that we are really looking at is this extreme polarity um, and fear. Mm-hmm. The fear that there's that we're going to lose something. And maybe that thing we're afraid to lose is the dignity that you're speaking of. Maybe that's that's the most feared possession maybe it's wealth maybe it's ownership maybe it's familiarity mm-hmm. that we're afraid to lose familiarity maybe it's maybe it's identity maybe we're afraid we could actually lose identity or history or memories maybe it's some sort of cultural amnesia that we're afraid of Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, there is a sentiment around the world right now that ha- is is um, it's unquestionably occupying huge percentages of most countries. Um, that is afraid of people moving in. from somewhere else feeling feeling and I don't re- feeling you know, inv- how to deal with you know? yeah sorry feeling invaded by homesick people I mean I'm referring to all these um, all these uh, right-wing governments that uh, seem to be uh, taking over in Europe, in this country. And a piece of poetry says to me, fear of being invaded by homesick people. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I just, okay, here's the question for yes. me around yes. this. Yes, yes. Who are we? And if if we ask that question, you know, who am I, Joanna? Who are you? And you would immediately start to look into your past to find a way to respond to that question, right? I came from here. I speak these languages. I've done these things. I've known these people. I have 
this is what I know, this is what I eat, this is how I sing, this is how I love, this mm-hmm. is how I how I how I practice devotion, whatever. Yes. But what if we were to take that question and approach it from the other direction? I mean, what if you were to fast forward several decades ahead and ask yourself, who were you in 2020? What did you do? Who were you in 2020? And who are we now? Who are we going to be? How is the how is the becoming possible? What is what's next for the possibility for who you could be? And the reason I'm asking that is that it's this question of dignity. And if if we are to coddle the fear that that Sweden could lose its dignity or that Hungary could lose its dignity or England or the United States or something is it's possible to lose that sense of self and that the structures of our society could crumble under the weight of the refugees and we mm-hmm. could lose everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then I do recognize that fear. I recognize that. But the question is, who are you if you let people die at your doorstep? If you leave them to die in Turkey, if you leave people in camps, if there's, if there's not an impetus to share our human experience, who are we? Who are you when you're looking at these little life jackets on the beach in Greece. Who are you when you're looking at those little, those little life jackets? And so right now, so much of the the discourse is around how do we pour all the money and projects and effort into um, making Africa livable so that we don't have however many hundreds of millions of refugees coming from there or pouring money into the Middle East to be sure that we can stave off the gushing wound, you know, of people. And um, I, I have to say that I have really mixed feelings about that. Because on the one hand, it makes some degree of sense, obviously, to do some kind of repayment, to recognize that, I mean, let's face it, part of the reason that there are wealthy countries is that other countries are poor. You know, there's not a not very many dictators or ravaged countries out there that haven't been at least co-ravaged by the wealthier nations. Yes. We've taken those resources. 
And it may have been 200 years ago, but the damage is there. The rape still happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's a, a kind of, you know, sense that, well, we helped to contribute to this damage, so we should contribute something toward the reparations of it. It still comes with a very strange attitude. Um, and and it comes as far as I can see too little too late you know it would have been great to have put all that money into Africa a couple of decades ago and if it doesn't do any good now to keep all those millions of people from wanting to leave what's the plan B and then I think we go back to the beginning of the conversation too and we just have to ask how is it that there is so much confidence that the ecological changes the ecological volatility the economic volatility that the, the political and cultural volatility how is it that those of us that are sitting in our comfortable living rooms in wealthy nations, how do we feel so sure that we will never be dependent upon the mercy of others? Sitting here in Sweden, we have a current, you know, there's a, a current that the ecologists for decades have said if this current stops, you're looking at an almost immediate ice age. Right. So why do we in Scandinavia feel so certain Cape Town has to turn off their water in some yes. soon upcoming date? Yes. California has hardly any water. Um, you know, there are, this is not something that is relegated to impoverished neighborhoods. Well, so how is it that there's this sense that, you know, it's never going to happen to us so we can go ahead and and um, close those doors? Well, going, going back to what you were saying about colonization and wealth the way I see it is I, I, I could take it to the to the tender place of relationship between two people mm -hmm. and you can have a you can you can have a, a warm and good time with each other but most, a lot of the time, you, you have two wounds facing each other. Uh, so that's true. That's true politically and... Um, it's true politically, historically. How do these... Uh, how how do these wounds get cauterized or even better uh, exposed and healed? Mm -hmm. 
I think that it's important too to go back to this idea of boundaries mm. and how mm-hmm. boundaries and identities are so easily reduced and and crystallized. So we draw boundaries all the time. We draw boundaries around various forms of study. You know, anthropology is something separate than mm-hmm. than history, which is something separate than um, music, which is something separate than than mathematics. And of course, if you dig very deep at all, you realize it's difficult to separate those things. So those are boundaries that we draw. Uh, you know, whenever we talk about a system, we're drawing a boundary. Yeah. Is the system my nervous system? Is it my body? Is the system my family? Is the system my community? Is the system my nation? Is it the biosphere? Which system are we talking about? And whenever we are, whenever there's a study of something, it's important to draw those outlines and figure out where, where the focus is, where you're concentrating on, on the information and the, the interaction. And that's all good, except for one thing, which is we mustn't forget that we drew those lines. And those boundaries are boundaries that have been drawn. They are not necessarily real. They are real in so much as we have made them real. But the microbiomes of your gut don't bother with them. The birds don't bother with them. (laughs) Music doesn't bother with them. Ideas don't bother with them. Plants and animals and all sorts of other things don't bother with them. Those are boundaries that exist in the collective idea scape of this generation of humans. And that's it. That's why the question of 20, 20 years from now, how, how will the boundaries have shifted looking back from the future? Yeah. I, I, I dare say that, that there is significant change coming one way or another. Um, For me, the question is really a question of how can there be um, some shared sentiment in approaching that transition and transformation with as much grace as possible. And I'm I'm not under any illusions that when we are looking at systems change, it's it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. That's I I don't think that there's um, 
Perhaps because it's because it hurts so much that is why there is such a a hardening, a political hardening, a hardening of the people who who create the politics. I guess, and some kind of recklessness where politicians are not allowed to say we are headed into a decade that's going to hurt and you're probably not going to get rich. And you may lose quite a bit of what you consider to be wealth. <laughs> there. And they're afraid to say those things because they won't get elected on that basis. But then you get the flip side of that, which is a, a, a rising sentiment of anti-establishment violence. Just break the system. Just mm -hmm. break it. Mm -hmm. You know, this information that came out recently in the big news about Cambridge Analytica, although it also surfaced quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the things that was so interesting about that was that there was this um, violence. It wasn't about how to get rich or how to win or how to get popular. It was about how to break the system. That's a new theme. In my lifetime, I've witnessed advertising and the manipulations of the advertising world and propaganda mm -hmm. used towards someone's benefit. But I've never seen it just used toward the process of creating destruction for the sake of it. Wow. That's something really interesting. It's so it's it's not even that you can point to greed. It's more just pure frustration with the existing structures and the voicelessness. And, and I feel that sometimes I can relate to that. That you know, it feels like you're in a Kafka story or one of those dreams where you're trying to scream and no sound comes out. You know, if you want to be part of systems change, where do you go? How do you do that? Right? You can't, if you go into the education system and you try to change the education system from the inside, you find out that the education system is entrapped in a context of an economic system and a culture. And the culture is entrapped in a political system and so on and so forth and so in order to change education maybe you need to change start from the from the employment sector or the political sector or maybe you need to start in the, the business sector or maybe it's in religion where do you start where's the where do you where do you scream and so I think that this this moment in history is one in which the structures that exist that we are perpetuating just by getting from one day to the next are pretty suicidal, I, you know, in terms of our own species and thousands of others, the resource usage and the um, exploitation that we're engaged in um, that is, I mean, really, you can't get to lunchtime 
without being part of exploitation of human and human rights and ecological systems all around the world. By the time you put on your jeans and eat your mm-hmm. cereal and have your coffee and get out the door and go to work, you have been ingratiated by our system into all kinds of slavery and horrible pesticides in the soil and use of petroleum and various kinds of economic exploitation and all all you did was have breakfast and try to go to work so there's a sensation that there's there's no way there's nowhere to scream there's nothing to break there's no way to change it there's nothing you can vote for or against in the democratic process that makes the kind of changes that we actually need to make because the system itself is um, is self-perpetuating so you know in, in a way I think that it makes a lot of sense to to have this feeling that we just have to break it but the destruction is terrifying also, especially when it comes with this sentiment of, I don't know, to me, Joanna, what I Mm -hmm. see is that there's a real mix-up between what it means to be strong and what it means to not care. Wow. And there's this, yeah, Wow. So I, I, I'm seeing that everywhere, that people make these, these gestures of strength and the way the undertones of it are, I'm so strong because I don't care. Yeah. And real strength comes from caring. That's it. I mean, before, before I got sober decades ago, it was uh, in French. It was my two mantras: "I don't care, and it doesn't matter." And I remember every time I got hit with the, with an arrow of pain that I believed came from another person. I kept repeating in French, I don't care and it doesn't matter. Mm. And uh, I I had to to be to stay sober, I had to recognize that I care and everything matters. Exactly. Exactly. So what I see right now is that caregiving is the skill of the future. Uh, okay. It is the, the most important thing that we can practice is caring. And sensitizing. Can you feel it? Can you, can you like you had to do in your story just now, addressing that impulse to shield yourself from pain with numbness. Yes. And when you resist that, 
what you're saying is I am going to go into this, increase the sensitivity and find a new way of quite literally making sense. But you can't make sense if you're numb. And isn't it interesting that all of the diagnosed and medicated pathologies right now are filling people with one way or another of not feeling. You can't make sense without sensing, without your senses. You, yeah, you can't make sense without your senses. And the life force and needs to be... The life force needs to be fed by the sense of making sense. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's, I was working over the past couple of years on this question of how do systems learn. Yes. And yes. some of the people that I was working with have been these this group of people in Italy and they do this incredible rehabilitation uh, with people in paralysis and in terminal pain huh. and uh, we went to study with them we being the Bateson Institute team because we were wanting to take a look at what does it mean when a system is stuck What's a stuck system? Mm. Um, you know, that feeling that there's nothing you can do to change it. It's stuck. I'm stuck. We're stuck in this thing, and it's moving toward the edge of the cliff, and we need to figure out how to get unstuck before we get there. That thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we learned there was that systems don't get unstuck. What they do is that they learn. And when systems learn, the conditions through which sense is made have shifted. And when that happens, this thing that we call change is a by is is ha happens. It's a byproduct. Okay? So Right now, there is such an appetite for, we have to make change, we have to change the system, we have to change the world, we have to change the way we live, we have to change the way we think, we have to change, 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 right? And what's interesting about that is that even thinking about change in those terms is so linear. We've made change a linear goal. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to call attention to that because it, I don't think it's actually productive. Because what we're talking about is a completely nonlinear process of sense making in which the conditions for becoming sensitive and applying new ways of making connections and linkings and, and, and new organizations that process is, cannot be linearized. But the change that comes of it, which it will, 
is just a byproduct. It's just a consequence. It's not the goal. Can you talk about how this applied to the people in great pain or paralysis or? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I will, absolutely. So there was one patient that they were working with that had lost his arm in an accident. And sometimes when that happens, there's uh, phantom pain that appears in the face or or in various parts of the body where there has been messagings that were sent toward that arm, but they couldn't get there because the arm was gone. Yeah. So they bounce around and they get deflected and confused. Okay, the key word there is confused, actually. And so in order to help this body learn to make sense again, one of the um, therapies that they used was to um, allow the person with the with a prosthesis there to make the motions of scooping up water with their hands and bringing it to their face. Right, probably one of the most ancient movements. Mm. Gathering water in your two hands and bringing it to your face. With the conversation with the practitioners around the memories of that water, the memories of those, those two hands meeting, the memories of the balance, the memories of all sorts of, of things that were coming together in that sense-making process. And Interestingly, this patient who had been on pain meds for 10 years, um, within three days, was off those pain meds. And the, their body, mind, um, speech, relationship with the world had shifted. But where was the shift? Was it just in the nervous system? No. Was it just in their brain? No. Was it, you know, in relationship and in communication and conversation with the therapist? Not only, right? So you, you see where if you have a goal, you can really miss how this process is so much about having multiple actions and sensibilities through which it's possible to make new sense, new sensitivity, new organization, new relationship with the world. But that's not exactly what we mean by change. The change that comes is just kind of, you know, that's the, the, the husk on the corn, but it's not the corn. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that that is important in this process of, you know, thinking about what we mean by boundaries and borders and where the world is going and how to be in it. How do we be in this moment with as much grace as possible? Because actually, I don't have any clever answers or 
sharp analysis or strategic plans Mm -hmm. that I can share with you about what we do about what's happening right now. I mean, I, I, I never thought we would be here, Joanna. I, Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine where the care has gone. Where is the care? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 partially the ideologies of whatever it is, neo-Nazism or you know, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon's insanity or you know, whatever, all that stuff, but ideology or no ideology, I'm really concerned for the tenderness between human beings and the shared dignity. The thing is, is that when we're talking about dignity, your dignity is not just yours. Your dignity is a shared experience. And it's not just shared between you and your tribe, your people, your community. It's shared with all the people of this era. It's shared with the natural world. It's shared with the entire history of ideas that humanity has created that brought us to this point. Are we going to leave those ideas on the doorstep of destruction? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, when, so you, when, yeah. You, when you describe the, the, um, the healing gesture with this person in great pain uh, it 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 translated in my language as exquisite tenderness mm. i mean how can can the system learn to get back in touch with the exquisite tenderness that opens up the desire for more learning for for change for enthusiastic change and and that just happens okay i mean we are living beings we're part of this incredibly creative process called life we are that when we're looking at our identity part of the the, what we mustn't forget is that we are alive that is part of our identity you know and and that means that there's trillions of organisms that live in our bodies and on our bodies in exchange with the bodies that we are next to on the train and next to in our bed then next to in our kitchens and and next to on the dance floor and it means that we are part of the political world we're part of our religion we're part of our language we're part of our 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 generation we're parents we're children we're brothers we're sisters we're lovers we're we're dancers and filmmakers and accountants and you know there's so much in identity and that 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 exquisite tenderness mm-hmm. that you're talking about is um 
you know, it's on board. It's on board. We are alive. Therefore, we're part of it. And it's an improvisational, creative, interacting mess of life. Well, you know, like water to chocolate, like water for chocolate, I I just... Uh, I just gained more beauty in my life because I will remember like like water to my face and mm. and when I feel low and and some level of uh, of despair I hope I will remember to bring water to my face yeah, it's a really, it was so beautiful to see that. I'm so glad that you asked about it because it's, there's something so eternal in that gesture of just bringing, right? It's, it's the relationship between, between humanity and water. That's, that's phenomenal. It's about the morning and it's about, cleaning and it's about drinking and it's about standing rock it's about standing rock yeah 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 we're we're approaching um the time where we would separate for a bit and uh and I'd like you, Nora, to take a moment and uh, share your prayer with us. My prayer. Yeah. Hmm. My prayer, and I would hardly ever call it a prayer because I know, <laughs> I know because that's why is, is more of um, I wish for mm. and I long for mm. and I envision in and I place the hours of my day and the blood of my life, the breath of my everything into the possibility that there is recognition of the interdependencies and the processes, the relationships, the interactions that take place in the beautiful complexity of our lives. And that, that we can notice that interdependency. Find new language for being in that interdependency. Find new ways of responding to that interdependency. Uh, and I think it's absolutely possible because I've seen it. Um, 
so that's what I am doing. I'm, I'm looking for how do we study that interdependency? What kind of, what kind of information would we find there? And, and what would that information look like? And if we had that information, what would we choose to do based upon it? How would we move differently into our questions, into our responses, into our actions and processes and the utilization of all this creative busyness of being human? And, and I'm willing in that prayer to carry the pain that is there also. But the beautiful complexity that I'm talking about is not always easy. I mean, I, I think you might say it's occasionally easy. It can be exquisitely beautiful, even in its painful moments, but it is only occasionally easy. Hmm. And um, so I, I want to bring that into our language now. I think it's important to recognize, not in a sad way, not in a depressed way, but that if you are willing to enjoy the beauty of life, you better be willing to carry the pain and willing to laugh at it. And who are you if you're not both terrified and heartbroken and deeply in love with life and, you know, kind of tickled by how delightful it is? Who, who are you? That's my prayer. <sighs> well, I thank you with all my heart, beautiful little sister. <laughs> uh -huh. Big sister. <laughs> oh, I just, you know, Joanna, I just love talking her. Couldn't we? We could just go on and on. And where would we end up? <laughs> <laughs> Who would we be 20 years from now? <laughs> you know, it's funny because we get going and the um, the outer reaches are never out of reach. Beautifully said. Well, one of these <laughs> one of these days we'll meet in one of these nations. And uh, yeah. and we'll 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 so beautifully hug. I'd so look forward to that. Yes.
sit still